How was your weekend, man? Pretty good. Did you get outside? No. I <laughs> you just caught up with your dog all weekend? I watched um, the U.S. WNT yeah, yeah, take yeah. home the World Cup. I was it's, uh, that that acronym. It's not an acronym. Whatever it it's is. like the name of their team, right? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. It stands for like U.S. Women's National, national team. team. Yes, but I always have to think before I say it. Yeah, it was awesome. I I love soccer. Yeah, I watch it every four years <laughs> or two years or however often it's on. It really is a great sport. Like I know nothing about soccer, and I felt like I could just watch watch the game and just start screaming at people get open get over there shoot the ball it is one of those things you have to like you you get into the game and it gets way better because you understand the momentum and stuff yeah and um it's nice that it's like 90 minutes and there's no stopping you know there's no breaks that is stuff. yes there's a half time half time but yeah. other than that yeah, yeah that's amazing yeah really cool i was looking at apartments when that game was going on in fight we walked by a bar and they was going pretty crazy because they won <laughs> like 10 in the morning yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Eleven thirty, but that's pretty cool. It was a nice weekend, though. Yeah, weather's been great. Everyone yes. leaves New York in the summer. Not this area. It's true, but it's pretty cool. Fireworks. I saw some of those. Did you see that the New York ones? No. I, next year, I need to make sure and get to the New York ones. The New Jersey ones. Yeah, I saw the New Jersey ones. That's what we saw too. Yeah, it's unfortunate for both of us. <laughs> So we got some stuff to talk about today. Yeah. Most recent one, no staging. So you're done with staging environments? <laughs> I saw this thread. I follow a bunch of like ops people on Twitter. Yeah, I actually meant to do some homework on this. This is how unprepared I came to this, well, this I podcast. I picked the most recent one. Um, there was a thread about like um, what, what would our development process be like if we didn't have staging servers? And, and I think someone said something like, yeah, what if all the code you wrote just went live on production as soon as you hit save in your editor sure i mean seriously imagine that i thought it was a pretty good um think about all the things that would change if that were true and would those things that would those changes actually highlight problems basically is is our staging or our staging servers just like a stopgap bad practice exactly are they just a stopgap for some deeper problem and and i think the answer is like absolutely true who said this I, this is why I meant to do some research yeah. and actually come in with the tweets and I didn't. There's just like I follow like a bunch of ops people on Twitter yeah, yeah, and there yeah. was, this was like a big discussion. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Well, with the Dependabot stuff, we've talked about that, right? Because um, when we first started that, it was you kind of were like, because you are more like ops minded and I'm just like, I don't care about anything. And you're like, this mean like we come to work and like our app's been deployed three times by a bot and we didn't know it. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And, you know, obviously, yes. But like, do I care? I mean, the idea is like, how confident are you in your test suite? And is it okay for like some left pad utility node library to go from 1.1.1 to 1.1.3 and have your app redeploy? And it kind of feels like that does, that is what I want. Yeah. So this is actually a great point. Like if you, if staging is part of your deployment process, then you can't use things like depend upon, right? Because like you can't use dependabot. Staging is part. Oh, like if verifying staging yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. In our case, it's not. It's we have our case staging, of, but we don't use it as we part don't, of it. Yeah. We don't use it. I guess we don't really use staging, do we? Yeah. We use, we use like our processes. We look at, we build app servers for each of our PRs. Right. We can look at those and then we merge right into master. It's basically from like PR build to production. Right. Um, right. But yeah, with, with, if you're relying on a staging server, 
then yeah, you can't like auto deploy yeah. Dependabot stuff because yeah. that, that technically that breaks your staging thing. That's part of like a no staging workflow. Interesting. Um, dude, other stuff like you'd launch more features behind feature flags. Mm. So you wouldn't have features that are just like getting merged and going live. Mm. You'd look at those things as two completely different things. And I think that is a, a, a net positive. Interesting. You'd be merging features a lot more but then you'd have like some feature flag thing. It wouldn't to, be to as release. big of a, all of a, a big one shot release process yeah. with the code being merged and just basically less changing at once. Yeah. Yeah. Releasing and deploying would be like two completely independent events. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff we talk about, like, like the deploying should be a non event. Deploying should be happening all the time where I think this no staging, um, you know, and I know this isn't realistic for a lot of organizations just because of like the process that's been built up over. No, but the, the argument years. is like that's what people would say that same thing about, um, uh, you know, ha- deploying an app once a week. Like, no, we have to deploy once every six months because of a huge process, but it's not possible for our organization. But really, it is. It's just that you are not adapting to um, a better process that would actually solve the pain points that you think the big bang releases address, yeah. which is like stability and all that stuff. Yes. So, um, yeah. Interesting. The other, the other thing I thought of, it's like, why do we use staging? Like a lot of times we'll, we'll use, and I'm saying staging for our PR builds. Right. But like, they will be like, I think I got a depend thing where it like upgraded SAS the last week or something. Mm-hmm. And like, I pulled it open on staging mm-hmm. because yeah, I'm not confident in my test suite right. to find visual changes. Right. Uh, so that's a huge gap. And if there right. was, if that sort of thing was going to get auto merged and there was no staging, um, I think that would like improve our test suite on the visual side. That's true. Like, and there's been times, you know, like, um, I don't know if it was Ember map, but one time you went away and, and did something and then I looked at it and I was like, Oh, this line height is interesting or some, some, maybe <laughs> I, you know, it changed. I, that's been my experience in the past. And I realized like, yeah, sometimes, especially those of us who spend a long time like tweaking like the front end like the visual design stuff there's times where i just sit there for like two days on something visual and you know tweaking with a line height of like 0.875 versus 1.1 or whatever and then like you deploy it and you realize like you don't have any regression coverage against that because we haven't set up like percy yet you know and it's like well we should do that you know yeah and like we work on apps ourselves and like we're both, we trust each other. And so that doesn't really, that's why it hasn't gotten to that point yet. But what you're talking about is pretty interesting. Like upgrades to tailwind upgrades to whatever. That's pretty good. Like I really like, and I've always liked the idea of my test suite covering regressions. You yes, know, yes. that's always been for me, like one of the biggest things, like just intuitively and just instinctively, as opposed to like the design aspect of it. It's more like. No, I want to know. I can just change anything I want to and, and redeploy my app and know the rest of it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Like you see that test suite run and you see like all the settings pages and, and that gives me so much confidence because like I just don't even know how those things work anymore. It's been, you know, so long. Yeah, they're doing Yeah, so, that, but that, but they're working. So that's great. That's really interesting. Now, what if you wanted to share your work? Yeah, well, that this is a great, this is, yeah, this is a great point. Like you're going to set up like an, your own server with its own environment just to share work. It's why not like put it, why not have a flag or something Yeah, or a super admin that has access to the feature can see the different version, but like why set up a staging environment for it? Yeah. Maybe like your, your production app has like different scenarios and that's pretty interesting. If it was like roles. way easier to like tweak that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it made me think like, seriously, is staging just a band aid 
Yeah, is it just yeah? Is it an anti-pattern? Is it just a band-aid for things that are hard to do right now? Yeah, right. Because it's hard to do. Um, if your app doesn't have a notion of roles and seeing different kinds of users seeing different versions of the app, that's a ton of work to add. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's a, and it's like, how do you do it? Do you like impersonate users? Do you set up like right. dummy accounts? Like which which you need a strategy for this sort of thing. So there's a whole company around this that. Um, some of our friends use on their app, uh, launched darkly. Yeah. I think Have you heard about that. Yeah. That was mentioned in this, these discussions, but um, they care, they take care of who yes. you can. And then you can message these, this group of ta- this subset of tagged users. And now they're going to see these things. So there's like a lot of runtime dynamic. So it's a hard problem for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously supporting a whole company, but like, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if it would make our dev workflow better. In the mm-hmm. sense that we'd have more confidence in our code, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Just as soon as you save this file, it's going to go in production. Like that, that would that change seems extreme. That, but it would change how you think about code, and I think it would change it for the better. I think you would have more. Okay, I'm assuming zero cost here. There's yeah. definitely a cost to setting yeah, yeah. all this stuff up, but I think it would change how you think about code. Um, Saving a file was this extreme. <laughs> I want. I want it as you type. Like as you type any input to the keyboard, it just gets deployed. So you have to have all your code like be able to handle like compile errors and everything. <laughs> oh, 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 I see. I see. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. I think it's a good thought experiment. Yeah, that is fun. That is fun. And yeah, I think if you ever find yourself on staging, you should be asking yourself like, why, why am I here and why can't this be automated or what, what could I do to not be here? And the answer might be, it might be like a super expensive solution. So maybe you stick with staging. Right. But I guarantee you there are probably are some simple answers for the times that you find yourself on staging. So yeah. Interesting. So like, yeah, that's pretty interesting. The visual stuff is something that really, like, I felt like that really hits home with me. Right. Where, um, yeah, it should be easy to test, right? Like maybe it's Percy with screenshots. Maybe mm-hmm. there's other things like what, what is the actual thing that I'm testing? Cause you weren't going to merge SAS with all those moving parts, right. not knowing that they're working. Yeah. Right. So that's pretty interesting. I guess kind of related to that, you know, another thing that we've been dealing with recently is just like the site on a cold boot, uh, on a cold, like a cache miss or whatever, because we do uh, the way we do fast, like server rendering and in our cache. And I'm always sometimes just popping open the site just to see what is, what's happening. Like, or if I come to work and there's like been two dependent bot PRs merged, like I'm going to pop open the site because I just want to see what happened. A lot of times it's really fast. Recently it's been really fast when I open up embermap.com. Yeah. I changed some architecture stuff. That's cool. Um, um, then I click on the video and it takes a long time to load in Safari. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to fix that. Yeah. Vimeo. We got to move to Vimeo. Yeah. Um, but the site was really fast to load. Yeah. I, I, I want to, I want to, we didn't like talk about this, not today, but I want to do like a tweet talking about our fast food ar- architecture. It's, we have no, it's kind of crazy because where we started like two years ago, we have no runtime dependency on Node or fast boot right now. So what would happen if there, if there was a cache miss, it would serve up the front end. You app? would serve up the front. You would serve up index.html. For, who would node the, would. Well, or? so we use node. node we use node. Proxy. We use node as our backend service. Cause yeah. cause when we started this, we did have a runtime dependency on fast boot. Yeah. So we, we started with node because we need a job dynamically a request time. It served. It's it constructed it, the page. Yeah, exactly. But now, now we have, slow. now we have absolutely Tom owes me a steak dinner, by the way, this summer 2019. <laughs> and we are still using, there's no way that a runtime fast boot generated page would be fast enough. Right. 
right? Yeah, I mean, there's I nothing that's changed. I I've in talked last year. I've talked to a bunch. Yes, there's nothing that's changed. Last time you go on the fast meeting with Tom, let him know. Okay, I want to go to uh, Peter Luger. Yeah, Peter Luger is extreme. <laughs> I would feel bad making him pay for that, but maybe we can go to quality meats. It's a good one. I like how you're like. I don't want to take him to a, a three hundred dollars steakhouse, but I'll take him to a two hundred fifty dollars steakhouse. Exactly. Um, He's a homeowner now; he can afford it. Uh, wait, what were, what were we talking? Oh, so, oh, is it fast enough? I think I've talked to a bunch of people. I think there are like some creative hacks you can do in fast boot to make it fast enough at runtime. Mm-hmm. But I think for a like, I've been working on an Ember app for the last three years, and yeah. I want to add fast boot. Yeah. It is not Gonna going work. to meet your basically like your expectation of what a fast web server should respond in. Right. It might take you know a thousand or fifteen hundred milliseconds to generate a response when when you're probably expecting maybe like to 200 milliseconds right um but yeah it's the interesting thing about our setup now is because we have no runtime dependency on on node we could actually go back to like serving our our thing from rails mm-hmm. um not not that we're going to do that because i think that would be a lot of work but i think that's like interesting. rails would be the point of first contact basically yeah and it would either we don't need serve cache or or make a request we have basically like um a whole bunch of workers that just sit there and generate fast boot pages. So, so Rails could ask them to generate a fast boot page. Um, if there was a cache miss. If there was a cache miss, yep. So I think this is like interesting because when we started this whole fast boot thing, it was like, oh, now we have to build a node web server mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. to get fast boot. And now we're away from that. And I don't, I'm not at the point where I want to go back, but yeah. I think, I think, you know, I've heard folks talk about like, you know, they want to build their backend architecture in um, Go or Elixir or Rails. And so it's nice that you don't have to introduce a node now. It's pretty interesting, man. Yeah. Well, also, like you could imagine this being a service where the service just re- renders fast boot and caches your pages and is re- provides a robust backup. Basically, but a fast. You yeah. have the two paths: the, yep. the serve the client app, bail out, and, and the, at the least serve the client app. Otherwise, serve a cache. Yeah, we'd have to charge like fifty thousand a month for this for like the four people that use fast food <laughs> for this to be like a sustainable business but it's a cool thought that goes beyond ember i think because think about that think think about yes yes think about like your gatsby build not actually being a build artifact but just being a basically a hook that gets triggered when someone changes their google doc and you don't have to rebuild the whole site you just you regenerate it um i mean you do rebuild it but it's it's more like, yeah, it's it's more like if a, for a site that doesn't change that often, it's basically an alternative to doing build time static files. It's like you're doing that, but you're you're doing it dynamically. You're, you're paying but, you're paying the yeah, build cost yeah. over the lifecycle of the application, so you pay the build cost at request time. And it's then just the, faster. You would hope it would be faster to regenerate a server rendered page. And you can be more intelligent about it. You don't have to rebuild your whole site. So if you change the title of talk, you know, ID one, two, three, this service could rerun the thing in node, which makes the net fresh network request caches it. In the meantime, if anyone requests that serves up the client app, but then it's super fast. And now the app team doesn't have to worry about caching or keeping any of that stuff fast. Yeah. Yep. It's a good business idea. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, Let's let's what what have we learned? Let's validate it first. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. I think I think for I think so fast boot. Most people building apps probably they don't ch- change that often. They're, most people's apps aren't Wayfair that changes 
with a new review every second or Amazon and could benefit from some cached server-side rendering that doesn't introduce the complexity of runtime server-side rendering. That's why it's complex. Yes. Basically, that's one of the the reasons. Yeah, and I do think SPAs will, we will see more SPAs and we will see SPAs that want to opt into this. Yeah. I think right now we need some more stability on like the development side of building server-side rendered SPAs Mm -hmm. where it's like you cannot add fast boot to an app and expect it to work. Right. Um, there's just a lot of, and I wonder what the story is in react. I don't know exactly how next works, but I know that's a huge part of its value proposition, right? Yes. Yep. I have to learn more about that. That's interesting though. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I like the architecture you ended up with because it's a clean boundary Yes. where the request comes in and there is a, you know, a coordinator who can just say at the very least, you know, give up the the client app that's the worst thing you'll ever get yep. otherwise if we have are able to generate a cache for this page then we can get that yeah um it's pretty cool and just generating that out of band is pretty cool yes yep and it's for a site like ours it makes perfect sense we don't actually care it actually doesn't matter like for the one person who gets the cold cache or whatever like it doesn't matter and also you could make it so that those workers are ahead of time are eager in their cache generation, you uh, know, and uh, watch the the build, like the data changes right. or whatever. Absolutely. This is like an architecture where it's like, if you get a cold cache, that's like a bummer, but right. but it's so easy to optimize that. Right. And exactly. With right. ahead of time, right. cache building, just like when the app server boots up, it right. automatically warms the homepage because right. we know someone's going to request that. Or the top 10 pages or, yep. or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. Hey, everyone. So I want to take a quick break to thank uh, a sponsor for this week's episode. It's actually our first sponsor of the show, and that is TrueCoach. And TrueCoach is actually hiring Ember developers. I got a chance to sit down with Alex Ford, their lead front-end engineer, and I wanted to share a bit of that conversation with you so you can hear about what they're looking for. Cool, man. What's the weather like over there? It's lovely. Just got into the 80s. Wow. It's late June. So tell me about the positions that you all are hiring for right now. We are um, looking to hire positions for our web team. So we're looking for Rails engineers. We're looking for Ember and JavaScript engineers. What's the main thing that the app does? What does it, what does it look like and who uses it? We provide a, a workout builder and a set of templates for you to create programs that you can assign and individualize for your client. And a client typically works from a mobile device, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a client, I'm in a gym, probably have spotty Wi-Fi, if any Wi-Fi whatsoever, and um, open up the app and I have a list of, say, you know, seven or eight workouts to do that day with demo videos and do them, maybe record myself, message my coach, hey, here are my results, this was super hard, I'd like to try this. And so we're really trying to solidify the communication gap and the feedback cycle between a coach and a client. What would be one of the first things that a new Ember dev on the team would be working on? We really love to start engineers off with testing. I'm hoping that by the time somebody starts, we get to focus on something from scratch. Mm-hmm. A brand new feature, we're looking at volume tracking, which means like tracking sets, reps, weight, tempo, and nutrition tracking, third-party integrations with, say, HealthKit and MyFitnessPal, Wow, you weren't kidding about the feature list that y- y'all have. We just want to build application code. That's <laughs> Ember has solved so many of those hard problems for us that we can just really focus and hone in on that. That's so cool. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to work at True Coach. We hire 
honest and transparent people um, who love building a product and who are customer centric, but don't take themselves too seriously. Our co-founders are so bought into Ember, which for an Ember dev is fantastic. And they want to continue to grow our Ember team, which is one of the more ambitious parts of, of our platform, of our app suite. Tell me a little bit about some of the actual the people that you work with. I, you know, I know Casey, actually cool story about True Coach, which used to be called FitBot. Casey, the, the, the co-founder who was the original Ember engineer on the app, I still remember one of the first kind of big companies that for me was big of someone using Mirage in their Ember app. And that was FitBot and Casey. And he kind of sent me a Twitter message saying, you know, this was like soon after like Mirage first came out and he was like, FitBot is an Ember app that uses Mirage. And I was like, what? And I like went to the website and I looked, I was like, this is real. Like, I can't believe that it's so cool. And that's kind of oh, how oh, cool. I yeah. first met uh, Casey. And, um, you know, ever since we've, we've hung out at the Ember comps and last year I got to hang out with all you all. And uh, we had, we had lunch together and it's, it was an awesome team. So yeah. Why don't you talk about some of the, the actual people you work with? One of my favorite people to work with is Emily. She was our um, our second Ember hire. It, it was it was so obvious that we need to hire her immediately um, <laughs> because of how great of a person is and her her product knowledge just right out of the bat. And it's some it's someone who just picked up Ember, having known React from Code School, and just really ran with it. Worked on it for probably about a year and a half, and then jumped over to. Um, the React Native app. That's really cool. And I also think it's a testament to y'all's culture because not everyone who's fresh out of a boot camp can be successful at every job. There's lots of places that aren't set up for those kinds of people to be successful. So that tells me a lot about um, how y'all are supporting each other, supporting new hires, and um, the fact that someone can work there for you know multiple years and grow in their own career at one place, I think is pretty unique these days. And the whole yeah. team is there in Boulder? We are, yeah. We're, we're all here in Boulder, we're looking to hire in Boulder, in Colorado. Um, we've got a few folks who live in Denver, if you're um, into more of a bigger city scene, and we've got a flexible work from home policy, um, which tends to work really well for our team right now. So it's really cool being in Colorado right now. At the Dinosaur JS conference, there was an electricity it really feels like an emerging tech market. If folks are interested and want to learn more about the job posting, where should they go? I think just check out bit.ly slash truecoachdev. That's going to link you to our engineering culture. If you think that sounds interesting, there's a link below. Just click the We're Hiring link. Yeah, check it out. Awesome. We'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Alex, thanks so much for your time, and I look forward to seeing you again at, at uh, maybe EmberConf next year. Appreciate you having me on. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, Sam. That's pretty cool. Related, um, you know, just thinking about, like, when I open the page and click around and stuff, um, and it was fast, but then, like, sometimes you click on one of those big series that's not loaded, and it takes a while, you know? And, and right now, we are bad UI developers because we don't have um, any sort of visual feedback at all for um, some of those slower links and um can i can i add to this mm -hmm. even if the thing is fast like even if the api response yes. comes back in 200 milliseconds it still feels off because it's, we have no feedback so you click it's yeah. very short pause then the page changes yeah yep 
And so this goes to something else we have here on our list, which is this Apple developer designing fluid interfaces video from WWDC 2018. We haven't talked about this yet, have we? No. Um, <clears throat> it's something I watched and it was fascinating. And it was about the design of what iOS, whatever, where this came out with the X basically, which is like you swipe up to go home and you swipe left and right to go left, you know, switch apps. It's like an hour long talk. Um, but man, it was like really, uh, motivating and like inspiring because they talk about kind of the main fundamental principle is that things in the real world, um, are always responsive to our input and their movement is derived from the physical force that we apply to the object. And so, you know, objects have properties like a rock is heavier than a piece of paper, but ultimately what drives the motion in the real world is the force that the human exerts on it so that's like a driving design idea behind ios 10 so um you know how it looks when you switch apps um is based on how fast you flick your finger but you'll notice like um if i go back and forward in an app on pages it it moves more easily but if i switch apps it feels heavier because apps conceptually are a bigger thing so the same amount of um, velocity applied um, to different um, interactions will produce different effects. So there's so many cool things like that. And um, another one of their main principles is that there's no such thing as like a fixed animation that has a beginning and end. Everything is always responsive just the way they are in the real world. So it made me think of all these things where we fail as UI developers and you click on something that takes a long time to load and there's no feedback. And that's a failure because the user doesn't know the difference between something that's frozen and something that is actually waiting and, and actually understood your command. Yeah. So um, really amazing stuff. I have, I have a question. So with iOS, I have like um, direction that I move my thumb, mm-hmm. like the momentum. Mm-hmm. How, how do those things translate or how would you translate those to like a web app that doesn't have that? Yeah, that's a good question. I thought about that too because, um, you know, in a web app, most of the time you're clicking and a click doesn't really have momentum associated with it. Now you can click and drag things. And so that's that's a similar example where like in FaceTime app, you know, you have your little selfie camera on the screen and you can flick that around to different corners. And it's cool too because they talked about how they built that. And... um, Instead of like, you might think like, oh, the, the FaceTime icon's down here, right? So like when you move it and you let go, you might say, oh, which corner is it closest to? But they don't do that. Because if you were down in the right corner and you started, and you start going like this and you let go, it, it would be closest to maybe this corner. What you, what you do is you calculate the resting point based on it being a free moving object. And then from the resting point, you see which corner is closest. And then you animate to that and corner. And then you animate to that corner. So cool. So that's that way, again, it's using your the momentum you gave to it. So I think the click and drag has a lot of these characteristics. And in the web apps, like we have some aspect, some things where we click and drag. Um, what about you know, like- a, a drag and drop kind of interaction, for example. And then other things I think about are like scrolling. Scrolling is a big one. Yep. Um, and that's why it's so good not to hijack the scrolling, uh, of a website because especially with something on, like, on a Mac that has momentum scrolling 
and you know you're using a trackpad or something where you're moving the content with your fingers like you want to feel like that that connection with the content and so um that's another example but i think the clicking is interesting because that's not yeah that doesn't have this gesture idea behind it but um i guess it does have like how long you click like a very short tap versus a yep long press yep um Hovering, I think, is another one like you, it reveals things or, you know, you can hover over something. That's something you can't do with a finger, really. Mm-hmm. And so we use that a lot. But um, it's more, I think, the, the bigger sin that we commit on web apps is the idea that um, we, we break constancy between objects. And so uh, in iOS, there's never sort of um, uh, that break. You, you never break object constancy, what they call. And so if an app is down here and you dismiss it, you know, you, it goes back into place. Or if you get rid of a window in Safari, it goes off to the left. Um, and if you bring it back, it comes back from the left, right? It, we violate this a lot in web apps. And so um, the idea being like if you're on embermap.com and you see kind of our video cards and you click on it and then it nothing happens. And then all of a sudden the page just repaints completely with a new video. It's like you want to leverage as much of human beings, you know, resonant spatial understanding of the world as possible when you're making things so that they understand where they are in the scheme of things. And so you could imagine that like you're going into a movie and then you're coming back out to the map, you know? And so Mm -hmm. you'd want to add some animation that does that kind of thing. Like the rest of them fade out and the big one zooms in something like that. I see. You know, one interesting thing I've thought about that made this harder on the, makes this harder on the web is that, a lot of times it feels like you have more control on the phone because um, it's just like a more constrained device and there's interactions that you like kind of go and dismiss. But with the web, like you have the back and forward button, you have the reload button, someone can paste you a link. And so now it's like when you're on the overview and you click on a video and you go into it and you come back, that makes sense. But what if you go straight to the video and then you click like home or something like that? Does, is it do the same motions apply? You know, maybe not always. But um, so that was just like another thought I had. That's like it's it's easier when you have more constraints to do this kind of thing. Nice. Would you to like get started with this, like doing like the whole like going into a video, coming back out, mm-hmm. considering the back button? That seems like the hard. Yeah, that's, that's like, like the, the, an ideal goal. Yeah. Is there like a rule of just like if you ever like click something, you should if you're ever firing an action or a task, like we should have something on the screen that that shows that yeah i think that's really good thought experiment to think even if there's like an add-on or something that you know as you run your test suite if there's any asynchronous behavior that's being weighted on and there's no visual change then it it throws an error the page yeah basically that html hasn't changed yeah and that's like that's really good because they talk about you know even without the gesture stuff like they talk about how and i think i think um Apple has a patent on this or something, and it's one thing they won all this money for over Samsung, which is like crazy, but um, like the the scrolling. So the scrolling is like one of the things that still kind of like sets apart, you know, iOS, and it's like really smooth, and people describe it as being smooth compared to like Android. And when you get to the top, you have the rubber band effect, and the idea being like it's telling, if you didn't have the, if you didn't have the momentum, if you didn't have the rubber band effect, you wouldn't know if you got to the bottom of the page or if there was a bug. Yeah, did the, the, the screen freeze? Right, exactly. You wouldn't well, know if the screen froze or if you actually got to the bottom of the page. Well, I'd see your footer with like, you know, your address and about us and contact us. And I just know it was at the bottom of the page. But if Every you, footer ever. Yeah, exactly. But if you didn't, if it stopped scrolling and you 
didn't see something like that, you wouldn't actually know. So the point is like your app, and this is a principle that can be applied regardless if you're doing gesture stuff and all this fancy stuff, your app should just respond to user input no matter what that input is. So clicking a link is user input. Have we understood that that you clicked on this thing and are we gonna give you feedback that we understood your basically your interaction? You should always do that in some way. Um, it's the fact that we don't right now in so many places on Ember Map is a problem. It'd be cool. We, we use like a lot of, I'm just thinking we use like a lot of cards with shadows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice to just like invert that shadow yeah. or flatten that shadow a little yep. as you click it, just a yep. little, you know, doesn't have to be even a, a freaking animation. loading spinner on your mouse is better than nothing, right? It's like it, it's like okay, because like if you watch someone use you know that stuff and you see them like click on things and there's nothing that's happening, they just start clicking again. It's super frustrating and that happens all the time. You know, it's not just us; it happens all the time. So, um, yeah, I thought that was really really cool and it is cool to think. Yeah, maybe there's like even some kind of low level solution that's not that good but it's better than nothing and you could kind of get it for free everywhere like what would be some kind of you would want like a box to come up every screen that says loading but maybe something on the mouse you know um what, what wasn't was it like windows or aol you'd have like the little egg timer yeah yeah and yeah. that would just start rotating yeah. but you know how our loading buttons do like that thing where they kind of disable and they start going like this yep. maybe you can make something that like absolutely positions itself over the thing you just clicked and like fades it out and then just shows that you know a little skeleton like kind of passing or something like that you could imagine doing something like that yeah um but um yeah i thought that video we'll definitely put a link up to that video because it was really interesting and it had it gave me a ton to think about um and i think like everyone building front-end sites you know should should watch that because apple is just doing you know obviously like amazing work and everything with ios i mean it's when they break down the thought that went into all this stuff, it's incredible. Right. So, um, yeah, it gave me a lot to chew on and definitely made me want to work on those animations more. I, I started working on this animation for the podcast index page on our site to like zoom into a podcast and I kind of got stuck, but I'm hoping by the end of the series that we're working on right now with Ember Animated, I'll, I'll give myself an excuse to learn enough about it that I will be able to build it and teach it as well because it's like a popular thing. I actually saw it on... Um, you know that uh, Ionic framework people, is that what they are? Colm, um, I think it's Ionic, and they made it with like Stencil JS, and they have something like that, like out of the box. Basically, the App Store UI on iOS. Ah, where it zooms in. Yeah, you can like get that. Um, for like, it's very easy. Colm, toot toot, uh, modules. Um, maybe this is different. I thought he did, but. Yeah, stencil JS or Ionic or one of those things, but I don't know what any of those things are. They're just like UI people I follow who are doing like design systems and you know UI kits and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that stuff is still really hard, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's like that's again when we've talked about this, where it's like that's the power of having an SPA. So it's like that would be good to right. You know, <laughs> might be nice to take advantage, take of, all advantage that, of all it. that architecture. Right. And like, cause even a normal browser, a normal server rendered site, at least like the browser gives you feedback. Like most people, when they click on a link that's from a server rendered app, know that whether they understood them or not, but it's just easy to forget that. That's an example, like of a, one of those hidden costs of SPA development, right? Yeah. Just like, you're going to frustrate your users if you don't think about this. It's super frustrating. I do. I do think though, that this is also like if you were building a page with like links were only a tags and they had like the active pseudo state, mm-hmm. 
then it's easier to give that feedback back. You can like flash it. You have a blue link and it like flashes red when you mm-hmm. click it. But I think as designs get more complicated, yeah. even in a server rendered app, like you have cards, you, it's harder to tell that stuff. But I'm saying the browser would be showing you. It would show like, like a little Like if you click the link spinner. on a card, it would just, yeah. the browser would go blank basically, or, or just wait and it would just see a little loading spinner, loading spinner in, the, in the URL bar or something. But yeah. um, so that's at least better than nothing. Yeah. It's better than nothing. Yeah. The SP, no doubt. For sure. The yeah. SPA is the worst yeah. at this. Yeah. The default case. The, the yeah. default, right. Yeah. I guess they do have some of those components that have their loading bars, you know. I think there is an Ember add-on that does that yeah, for like any route transition. Right. It's like N, N progress or yep. something. It's like yep. There's like a popular J- JavaScript one. Yep. So that's the right idea. I mean, maybe it's not the UI you want, but at least, again, talking about if you don't haven't thought about this at all. So, well, I, I just want to push back here. Like, sometimes I feel like if you just plaster that stuff all over your app and say it applies to everything, it looks bad. But compared to what we have right now, like what if we just had one of the very top of the whole site that anytime there was a link that we hadn't opted out of that or something, it would show that you're actually like loading the series. Would that be like, would that be, that would be better? I think so. Yeah, I definitely think so. There's literally no feedback right now. If you click on a card and it loads a series and nothing happens. I guess I'm thinking of like, what happens if the response is fast and like you see this bar flash and it goes away? Um well, you can improve it, but yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, of course, you can improve. Of I course. think some feedback is better than none. Okay. Now, I mean, I guess this is like the idea behind suspense, right? Is that sometimes w- w- with you don't want like loading spinners everywhere if it's fast enough. Um, but fast enough is like 150 milliseconds for a user, which yeah. you know is. I I think that that. Yeah, I I just think you want to think about these things. You want to think about these things. You do, but the default state is pretty bad. It's yeah. really bad that there's no feedback. I, I, I help build our site, and sometimes I don't know if I actually clicked on something <laughs> or not. It's really bad. That is pretty bad. <laughs> I'm, trying th- I'm trying to think. Right, because then the caching starts working, and the site feels super fast, fast and it's right. awesome. But it's like, yeah, you just. That's that's actually a really good point, that like on certain code paths, you do have a yeah, Ember, Ember data store thing. cache, yeah. so it's fast. Yeah. But on other code paths, you don't, and yeah. you're not sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. The other thing is like preloading things like Gatsby style where like, okay, I see the first four cards and everything. I'm just going to like, once your mouse gets this close to them and pixel distance away, I'm just going to prefetch the model hook. So that way it'll be instant once you click on it. Yeah. That's another way to deal with that. I would love to build, to build that experiment with that sort of stuff. I think that is really So I guess we're talking about two different things. One is, is the speed issue. And then the other is like, even if it was instant, it's still good to think about the object constancy point, which is like, where am I relative in the hierarchy of this visual hierarchy of this thing? Like mapping to the real world where like I move a cup and it goes this way. Like if I click here, where am I relative to the original content? So, um, those can be thought of independently of each other. But I think, I think the, the instant feedback and object constancy, constancy stuff is that's the, that's the the stuff that we miss. Yeah. So that seems like it's important, more important right now. Yeah, the speed thing is important too. The feedback is important too. Yeah, but yeah, there was a ton of stuff in that. I'm trying to think of some of the other things. Um, a lot of really, really good stuff. Uh, you know, different affordances. Um, yeah, lots of really cool stuff. So yeah, we'll definitely link that, and, and I would, I would highly encourage everyone to watch that because it's just, it's fascinating. Um, we've been playing with Gatsby. Because we're building out a site for Mirage. Yeah. 
learned a lot about fonts this week more than I probably wanted to know. Although it's good for me to walk through that path because I think custom sites I've worked on in the past that use custom fonts, someone else had basically done the work for me. And so I'd never really gone through and just done the plumbing. I was pretty blown away by how bad the experience is. Awesome. I'm happy it was you and not me. It was so bad. It was so bad. Every font site has its own weird custom website. They call them foundries. They're all awful. And figuring out how to buy the font and which versions you need and want is like super confusing. Then you download it. You get a PDF of its usage and you get all these files. You have to make a CSS file that defines all the font face rules and points to the right ones. You have to choose which version of the font corresponds to the font weight of 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, right? Yeah. It's crazy. So there's like sometimes if there's if you don't buy nine different font styles, you're just missing a font weight. Yeah, you have to make a you just it's, you have to make a guess. Like you have to make a decision about okay, like bold will be nine hundred and and medium will be six hundred, but we'll just miss seven and eight hundred or something like that. So that's crazy to me. It seems crazy. Like also especially if you're putting yourself in the shoes of like the implementer and you're getting a design from someone, which was my situation. Um, you want to just be able to implement it as best as possible. You don't really want that those decisions. Yeah. It just seems like there's better people in the world to make those decisions than me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So then you do all that and then you have to get question of like, how are you going to serve these fonts? And oh, and you have to pay for them separately. Also, they're very expensive. It's a racket. It's a racket. It's a racket. And then you serve them either alongside your other front end assets, but like we know how we want to serve JavaScript and CSS. Like we we're going to put those in a CDN, right? And images, we're going to use like ImageX or Cladinary. And like fonts, it's like, okay, well, what do we do with fonts? It's like, we can put them on a CDN, but like we're using Netlify, which I, I think guess they have their own CDNs, CDN. but, but to, we don't know. Is that like the right CDN for serving fonts? Is that going to be slower or faster right, than we AWS? Wouldn't, right, because we wouldn't use AW, like our CDN for our images because we know that images are unique and they have their own constraints and characteristics that make it more suitable to use something like Cloudinary or ImageX than our kind of standard CDN. So is it the same true for fonts? Are we going to run into the weird things with fonts that we don't know about? Some of the projects, some of the sites, the the services that you pay for come with a prescripted way to host the font. So like you have to go through them. And so you have to like add a CSS link tag to their site. And so now you're depending on their thing. And so what does that mean? Like, can I look at this locally on development on an airplane? I, I like being able to develop everything locally. Yeah, I've used those and it is, they are so painful. Yeah, it's bad. So that was pretty crazy to me that there wasn't some sort of easy way to do that. Um, I'd also realized that like we have, I think um, on Ember Map, you know, our font is, um, what is it? Avenir? Avenir, Avenir next. But it's not on Windows because Avenir is not on Windows and we never downloaded Avenir and included it as a serve as an asset. So like, that's a problem too. It's a problem. Like we, we shouldn't choose a custom font that's not available everywhere. You want to, that's why system fonts are a, a good approach as a base case. If you're not, if you don't want to go through the pain of setting up a custom oh, font. Yeah. Um, is Avenir such that you can easily get it and host I it? I don't know. There's some that overlap across Windows and OS X, but I think the best bet is to just look up we could look that up on like Google fonts. It's like free and just use them or something like that. Right. That's yeah. like, or, or download it and serve it ourselves. But it's the same idea. It's the same basic idea. The it's other a rigmarole you have to go through inter yeah. inter is a good open source font that comes with a file. You download that has the CSS file with all the font face rules. So you can just say font, you, know, you can go to tailwind font 
and you can type in like body and you can just type in enter and you load that CSS file and you'll be good to go. Nice. So I think that's probably what I would start doing on a lot of my projects or like Tailwind's default font stack for uh, sans serif is like the system fonts. So it does mean like your site will look different on different devices, but like it's fine mm-hmm. because it's like going to look like system sites. Like it's going to look like native stuff, which is a good default. It's a great default. Yep. I, I do think there's a trade off here between like ease for the developer and then like the designer. Cause like the designer should be, you know, Not is thinking, thinking about without the, those constraints. Right. right. And is thinking about all this stuff, how it all applies to the design. Right. And um, that's one of the reasons like the design that James gave us looks so good. Like yes. I spent so long looking at this last week as I was kind of pr- building it out on the phone and, and everything. And you just start to notice these details. Like I can see why people get obsessed with typography stuff because I would go to it and go back to like another version I had without it or like other sites. And it's like, yeah, those fonts are unbelievable. They really, you know, I even showed it to like Alexis and she was like, wow, it looks super professional. The reason is, is because of the fonts. Like that's such a huge part of it. So, um, I think I didn't appreciate that as much before. Um, so it's something that I was glad to have gone through. So I'll think more deliberately about it in the future. You know, and if we carve out some time to like, there's a lot I'd like to do with like the blog site on Ember map to make it, you know, cause we just, you know, we have a default font doesn't look bad, but like there's so many little things you can do to make it more readable and, and all that kind of stuff. So that was pretty interesting. Very cool. But it's like, yeah, it's pretty crazy how, how bad it was, you know? <laughs> and now I notice things now too, like just looking at people's sites and stuff. I'm like, oh wait, yeah, there's so many basic mistakes that I've been making for years they could improve this in so many ways. You know, the most egregious one is like the the um, characters per line. What is that called? Um, how many characters per line before you max with it? Oh, like the measure? Measure. You know, that's the biggest one. People still make it. Like people will post a blog post. I'll click on it and their site will yeah. just be unmeasured. But then the line height and the, and the kerning as well, the leading and the kerning or whatever, is just huge. And like I went back and looked at the refactoring UI chapters on line height and, and kerning. And um, letter spacing to that's kerning. Letter kerning. spacing is kerning. Kemming. Kemming. Yeah. Is that what, how you say it? No. <laughs> it's like if the R gets too oh, close oh, to oh, the yeah. N. Exactly. It's, it's a kemming. <laughs> you know that because of Ted, don't you? Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, as you're making like these bigger titles, like that, that affects the letter spacing and the line height, and and um, there's kind of a base principle that's like really most of the time it's just about making it more readable. So if you're looking at a design, it looks a little off. If it's hard to read, your eyes can't really read the words or they can't find the end of the line in the beginning of the next one. If you tweak line height and letter spacing such that it makes it easier, usually your design looks way better. And like I was seeing dramatic differences, even though I had the professional font loaded, the really good one, uh, looking at my phone and making the slightest tweaks to things like the letter spacing, the line height, bless you. And um, that, that that would have a huge impact on that. So I just was like, I have a new appreciation for that stuff. Nice. You know, and it's one of the reasons it's good to work with a professional designer too, because they really, now you can see after looking at so many things, when you come back to the design that we got, it's like, okay, that's why it looks so good. Everything looks great. Is this something that you think can be like packaged into like a framework? Well, I was thinking about that. I mean, the other problem is like you look in sketch and those values that he used um, have, you know, he has a line height and a letter spacing, but it looks different on my phone, you know, for a variety of reasons, even the font size and the weight, even the weight, the weight is another thing that looks very different. So I find myself having to make 
those decisions myself, even though ideally you want to just implement the design, but like the reality is you're building on different screens at different widths. So you need to make some decisions like that. And, um, you know, it does feel like there's relationships there between like how big the font size is and what the letter spacing and the line height should be. So you could maybe embed those somehow in some sort of component or something. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's just like color. Um, what Adam and Steve say is like, you have to just, it, it, it requires human decision-making there. There's no formula. So I, based on what I was doing last week, I felt like the same is true of this stuff. And you just have to know, you know, I've watched the future on YouTube before. The future is really good for anyone interested in like design and um, marketing stuff. And they do a lot of like their design agency. And a lot of times he'll start with like, let's say we want to center this thing. So we use like center from the computer, but then you like look back and it's not visually centered because part of it has a weight. So you have to finesse it yourself and that requires judgment. So I think if there was a service, it would be something that was curated from someone and that says that these go well together and here's how it should look on a phone and here's how it should look at this screen size. And they, they gave you the weights and the, and the font sizes and everything. I was also struck by how different it looked on Chrome responsive viewer than my phone such that I basically stopped designing it in Chrome and I just had my phone set up right there, which was awesome with Gatsby, by the way, because it was just like auto reload, the hot reloading thing. The whole site wasn't even re I would scroll down the page and change the code and like a little word would change or the line height would change. So it was like an instant feedback kind of thing. It was really cool. Yeah. And just to add to that, it like even tracks state so that if you enter a word into a text box and then save a file, and it auto reloads. It auto reloads, but the word still stays in that text box. Really, really cool. And and whatever it is. I mean, maybe it's just that this is a new site and new tools and it's super fast, but it's super fast. It's fast, yeah. It is funny. The hot reloading stuff breaks like 20, 30% of the time where you're just like, I'm just going to reload the yeah, whole page. But, yeah. but it's still nice when you make little tweaks not to always have to do that, but it's definitely not like a perfect um, thing. It's like weird things can happen with the hot reloading. But overall, it's an awesome experience, especially for building like a marketing page. And, um, what was I talking about? So yeah, like I basically turned my, my thing off where it wouldn't shut off. I plugged it in and just had it right in front of my computer and was just doing it there because, um, it was just, it looked so different. I had, I picked out the, the, the line height and the letter spacing that I wanted and I kept looking at it on my computer and I thought I could read it, it looks great. And I look at my phone and it was like, no, I need to bring it a little closer. Maybe it has to do with, you know, how big the screen is, how close it is to your, your eyes. But it yeah. was, I, I just was like, I'm not even comfortable anymore making any design decisions on my computer because like, it's just not actually realistic. You get a wrong impression. Interesting. So it's, it's almost like, yeah, you just want the editor up on your monitor and then the whole yeah. browser on the phone. Yeah, you really do. I, you know, I worked on an iPad app years ago, but I had like a gooseneck. It's like those bendable mm -hmm. things. And I had the iPad like right. Oh, that's awesome. Right next to the monitor. That's kind of awesome. In front of me. That's so kind of what I wanted. Yeah. Dude, they're like 12 bucks yeah. on Amazon. We should just get we one. We should get one. And then it's right line. You know, it's just eye level. That's really cool. One time, I think it was Adam who was opened up Xcode to run a site. So you really had an emulator that was like doing the exact same thing that the iPhone did. So maybe that would have gotten a little closer than just like using Chrome's responsive mode. Ah, okay. I was thinking it literally opens like an iPhone shell and yep. like you can, all you can do is drag on it and all that kind of stuff. I, okay. So that's a good question. Is it, is it like the computer monitor and like the distance your face yeah. is from the monitor or and the, the size? emulator? Yeah. I don't or know. Or is it like Chrome? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Then. <laughs> 
I spent a lot of time on this and didn't get very far. You've got the let me tell you. Yeah, I had it. I, it's I, I'm I'm frustrated right now with how long this has taken, but um, I started changing some of the copy on it, you know, and I was typing in Gatsby and everything, and and I realized I didn't like the flow of all the words, and so then what I did was like I'm like I shouldn't be coding this. Like it's fast to change it, but I actually want it's not fast enough. Like I need to step away from this and think about the thing. But I still wanted to change it and see it on the iPhone in the design we had. So I went back and made a custom artboard that was exactly the iPhone X's width in Sketch and opened up Sketch Mirror, which is like basically the same thing where you click on it and you get to see the thing on your phone. And um, I copied over the values that I had already set up in like the actual project and it looked exactly the same. And I scrolled it and everything. And that way I could just make more drastic changes in sketch and and change the typing and stuff without any code which was way faster and so i realized i should have done that first because what i did was basically we started with like the desktop version i liked that and then i was basically building it mobile first i kind of built the desktop version get a sense of it and then i realized you know i need i was like all right i'm ready to do the mobile stuff and i kind of basically did the whole mobile thing ignoring the desktop stuff because i like building it mobile first because it's like yeah you're going to end up with a better mobile site that way both cases like when you do mobile first and you get to the desktop you should treat the desktop as itself as its own thing or else you'll end up with like something that just looks like a mobile site that's stretched for desktop but the same is reverse if you start in desktop and you just squish it down without thinking through the design you're going to end up with something that looks like a desktop site squished down doesn't look as good so i wanted to take the mobile design on its own so making the sketch artboard and doing that like that was really good because then i just could put myself in the user's shoes and kind of like okay, I'm looking at the site and I'm scrolling. Like what, how fast should the information be flowing? Like, you know, how fast should the story move? And like, what do I want to see right here? So that was really good. And I I was like, I should have done that first. I should have done it before I wrote any code. That's a great little nugget. Like the mobile site and the desktop site need to be designed and built independent of each other. Yeah. And then you can use the responsive stuff to like make that, the bridge between them a bit easier. But they can't. It's not one than the other. Yeah, I totally feel like that. And it's you're in a different context when you're on your phone. You want to see different things. Like on desktop, if you're a coder and you're looking at a coding project on desktop, you know I'm going to show you the code and the UI unless you hack around with it. I know you're going to have your keyboard. Maybe you're going to pop open DevTools. But I might even say that on the desktop and say, look, even open up your dev tools and you'll see Mirage responding right now on the console. I'm not going to say that on the phone. It doesn't make sense to say it on the phone. Yeah, You can't open up the dev tools <laughs> on the phone. So it's going to be different. Yeah, it's really good. Like how when I whenever I build a mobile site, I still build it on the desktop. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, I should be doing what you did. And, it's really and changed have the phone. To me, it really changed. It really changed a lot. So, okay. Well, I guess that means we're done. <laughs> we didn't. Maybe next week we can talk more about Gatsby because I think yeah. there was a lot there that we really liked. And um, yeah, definitely. We'll do. We'll do an episode on that. Cool. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will see you next week. Bye now. Thank you.